All right, saints, if you would open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Nahum. If you're curious where that is, just go to Matthew, back up six books, and you'll find yourself right there. While you're there in Nahum, keep in mind that we went through the entirety of the book of Nahum this last Wednesday. So we went through the, 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 the whole book. As we went through the whole book on Wednesday, um, we, we looked at in its entirety, and we saw how it was a judgment to Nineveh or to Assyria. Now, this book here is two books after the book of Jonah. If you're familiar with that book of Jonah, Jonah was a prophet that God said, I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city, and I want you to give it a message. You know that message, 40 days and judgment is going to come? And Jonah says, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I'm going to go the other way. Well, God spoke uniquely to Jonah, saying, you're going to get there one way or another. Delivered Jonah to Nineveh, at least to the shoreline. Jonah didn't make it the rest of the way on his own accord. And when he got there, he preached a message simply saying in 40 days, God is going to judge. And then something unique happened in the, the nation of Nineveh is that they repented. Every one of them, from, from the king all the way down to, to babies and animals, they wouldn't eat, they wouldn't drink sackcloth and ashes, and they said everything in the city mourn, and weep, where God's judgment is coming. And God relented. In other words, God didn't bring the judgment that he said was going to come at that moment. Well, Jonah became this pouting prophet, and through his pouting, he said, God, I knew, I knew that you were good. I knew that you were long-suffering. I knew that you relented to do harm. Why did you send me here? Well, two reasons. God sent Jonah there for the first reason is because he loved the Ninevites. In spite of their wickedness, he loved them. And the second reason is he loved Jonah. And he wanted to grow Jonah in his understanding and his grace of God. But then uniquely, 100 years, 100 years after the book of Jonah, Nahum, this little guy from nowhere, he's, he's from Elkosh, he's, he's an Elkishite, Nahum comes on the scene and pronounces this judgment against Nineveh, an incredible judgment against Nineveh, saying that your whole city is going to be overrun. It's not God is going to judge as just divinely, but he's going to actually bring in this other army and they're going to just annihilate you. That your city, the entirety of its city, is going to be as if locusts came to a grain field, consumed it all, and then just left. And nobody knows what was there. And crazily, that you know, until the, the, the 1900s, Nineveh was just gone until the archaeologists said, wow, this is Nineveh. We found it. But it was just gone. They, they literally, as the, 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 the Babylonians, um, led by Nabopolassar, he would be um, Nebuchadnezzar's father, came in. He brought some Medes. He brought some other nations that were very disheartened with Assyria and said, we're going to take you out. And they did. But Nahum said there's going to be a judgment to Nineveh. This is after Jonah. Now, Jonah, I'm sure, at 100 years later, was there going, yeah, yeah, Nahum, go for it. Go. This is the message I wanted to give. 
without God relenting. And as he's giving all this judgment to Assyria, as he's giving all this judgment to Nineveh, he comes in chapter 1, verse 7, and he changes dramatically. What I want to do is I want, I want to back it up to verse 6 just so you can see the change here. Our text is going to be in verse 7. But in verse 6, as he's talking to the Ninevites, as he's talking to Assyria, he makes this statement in Nahum 1, verse 6, who can stand before his indignation, who can endure the fierceness of his anger, his fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Sounds like an angry God, right? And then in verse 7, he goes, the Lord is good. And you're like, wait, what side are you on? I thought you were just talking about who could stand before his indignation. Now you say, God is good? And he says, yeah, the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. See, at this point, God is going to deal with the Ninevites. Now, as God is dealing with the Ninevites, is he good? Well, he's good to, to Israel right now. We know that he's good to Judah. They're happy that he's going to be doing this. But the, the question is, is so often in our own hearts, is the Lord good? And I think it's, it's a question that we sometimes wrestle with. I, I want to share with you, just for your note takers, just a, a verse, two verses to kind of put in your arsenal of just things to remember, things to kind of look back on. In the book of Exodus, what happens is that Moses actually wants to see God. He says, I want to see your glory. Now, now there was a time when the burning bush, he's like, I don't think I should be here if it's you, God. And God says, no, I want you to come on, take your sandals off. Come on, uh, we're going we're to have a chat. But eventually Moses gets to the point, he actually wants to see God. And God makes a statement, listen, you can't actually see me because no man can look upon me in the human state lest he die. You can't actually see my physical. But what I'll do is this, is I'll pass by you, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, cover you, and I'll pass by, and what you'll see is my afterglory. You'll see the glory that, that just passes through. In other words, as, as Moses was there before the Lord, what? His face shined because he was there in the very presence of God, not seeing him directly, but in his presence, the glory of God just kind of rubbed off on him. When Jesus was there on the Mount Transfiguration, he literally unveiled his humanity and revealed his divinity, and he shone. He just glowed. And so we understand this about the glory. So God says, I'm going to pass by. I'm going to hide you so you can't actually see my presence. But when I go by, you're going to see this afterglory, and I'll let you see that. Now, when the Lord had passed by, God did something unique to Moses that Moses records for us. It says in Exodus 34, verse 5 and 6, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God actually says, this is my name. Now, when we know the name is also oftentimes in, is synonymous in Scripture with character. In other words, when you were young, if you gave your family a good name, then it said, oh, you had good character. But if you gave your family a bad name, it means, listen, your character isn't so good. It's rubbing off and saying, this is the character of the family. 
And so God proclaims his name. He proclaims the name of the Lord. And verse 6, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and then he says this, and abounding in goodness abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is what he proclaims his name as. And I love one aspect of how he proclaimed his name. It says, this is my name. My character is abounding. The term actually is super abounding in goodness. Now, I'll tell you what. When you look at people, you can say, yeah, he's a good person. But how many people could you actually say, this person super abounds in goodness? You could say that if you didn't know them well. But the more you know of them, the longer you're with them, the more you realize what? Oh, this person too has a sin nature, just like everyone else I know. And so you're not worried about people super abounding. But God says, I am super abounding in goodness. And we have this tendency so often of knowing that God's good, but then what do we do? Then so often events and circumstances come along that we begin to question it. And that's the rub. That's the crux. Because when Nahum says the Lord is good, he's actually meaning the Lord is good. And we understand that, we believe that until a circumstance has come and then we're challenged to say, do I still believe this truth that the Lord is good? There is a psalm in Psalm 73, beautiful psalm. And what happens in this psalm is it's a psalm of Asaph and Asaph makes this declaration right in the beginning of Psalm 73. He says this, Truly, God is good. That's what he says. Truly, God is good to Israel. And he knows he's good. To such as are a pure in heart. To anyone who has a pure heart, they realize that God is good. And then Asaph says this in the very next verse. He says, God is good. I know that he's good. But in verse 2, he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now, isn't that sometimes true with us? We know that God is good, but then an event comes, a situation comes, and like, I don't know yet. I, I know you're supposed to be good. I know that I'm supposed to believe that you're good, but right now it doesn't resonate in my head. It's not really resonating in my heart and my spirit that you are good because I don't see good right now. And so Asaph, after he says, truly God is good, comes in verse 2 and says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 4, for there were no pangs in their death, and their strength is firmed, and they are not in trouble as other men, and nor are they plagued like other men. When people get away with wickedness, when I look and say, that's just not fair, 
Why is this person, you know, being persecuted? This person goes to jail, but this other person doesn't seem that the law applies to them. I look and I go, why is it that life isn't fair? And if life isn't fair, God, are you really on the throne orchestrating what's fair and what's not? Because as I'm looking at this, Asaph says, I'm now envious of the wicked. I'm thinking, why am I being good when I could be bad and not have any problems? He says in verse 4 of the wicked, there are no pangs in their death. They're not suffering and dying. They're, they're, they're wicked, 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 and then they just go to sleep and they die. Like, ha! Huh. Now, why is it that the wicked are just living this life high on the hog, abusing people, and, and they die peacefully in their sleep, and all these other ones are dying what? Cruelly because of the wicked people. I don't understand what's going on. And so he says, I know you're good, but when I'm looking at situations, when I'm looking at these events, I begin to question it. My feet almost stumble. And then he says this in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and I understood their end. See, keep in mind that their death, peacefully in their sleep, wasn't their end. That was just an end of a sentence, an end of a chapter. It wasn't the end of the book. He said, I went into your sanctuary and I realized their real end. The real end is my eternity is going to be with you in heaven. Their real end is going to be apart from you in hell. I go into the sanctuary of God and all of a sudden then it realizes I'm like, God, you are good. You are good. I mean, you're allowing them in your mercy and your grace to go through this. You are, are, you have a purpose and a will I know that I'm not even aware of. But when I went into the sanctuary, then, and isn't it funny how you're in the world and you, you question, is God really good? I know he's supposed to be good, but when I'm here and I'm talking to people and I'm dealing with situations, I'm wondering if you're good. And then you come in to the sanctuary, you're greeted and you're welcomed in and, and we do a psalm reading. And then we begin to worship and you're like, God, you're good. I know you're good. And then the word comes out and the, the, you know, the, the pastor comes and comes to the pulpit and says, oh, the Lord is good. You go, amen, brother. Amen. I know he's good. And then you go back out there on Monday morning. You're like, I thought he was. I was declaring he was. And now again, I'm beginning to doubt whether he is or not. So the, the question is, is do we still question and believe is God good when I'm in pain? Do I, do I question and do I believe that God is good when I'm going through a trial? You're like, God, if you're good, you're going to get me out of this. If you're good, you're going to deliver me from this. And, and so, so often we question if God is good when we suffer either physically, emotionally, financially. We question, God, what's going on? Are you still good? What, what, what's the deal here? Now, there was a man in the Old Testament by the name of Job. And Job is, according to most scholars, the oldest book in the Bible. It's not the first book, but it's the oldest book. As Job writes these words out, it's the oldest book. And, and Job, Job comes to this point where he has to question, God, are you still good? Because Job went through 
financial troubles. In other words, all of his livestock, all of his camels and his herds and everything was taken and, and his servants were slaughtered, and a few would come to him and said, boy, I alone am left. Everything else is wiped out. Job suffered hugely financially as the enemy was allowed to wipe out all of his livestock. And after he suffered financially, then he suffered emotionally as the enemy was allowed to wipe out all of his children. All of his children were gathered for a party and their big storm came, crushed down the roof. They all died. So not only did Job go through this financial crisis, then he went through an emotional crisis. And after that, then the enemy says, hey, let me give him boils so that he can scrape off his skin with a pot shirt and then let him see if God is good. And so after he suffers both financially, then emotionally, then Job, he goes and he suffers physically. And then Job does something unique. When his wife sees all the suffering that he's going through, and, and as he, he, he does that, she, she comes in and says, Job, what in the world are you doing? You're, you're, you're just suffering this, and, and after, after you hit this financial hardship, then you went through an emotional hardship, now you're going through a physical hardship, and then he's going through this marital hardship where his wife comes and says, you, his wife said, do you still hold fast? This is in chapter 2, verse 9, to your integrity, curse God and die. She's saying, Job, I'm married to you. Are you really going to say that you're, you have integrity? Just curse God. Just, just give it up. Die. End the suffering. Just, just, just end it, Job. Die. And, and Job, in verse 10 of chapter 2, he said, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we in, indeed accept good from God? And shall we in, indeed not accept adversity? See, he said, I accept good from God, and I'm accepting adversity, but he doesn't say the adversity was from God. Do you understand how he understands it? He says, God is only good. God is just good, and I accepted good from God. Now, when adversity comes, and it's not adversity from God, he didn't say, shall I accept good from God and adversity from God? He realizes the two are distinct and separate. People put them both together, and they shouldn't. But he said, we, we accept good from God. He knows instinctively through all this that God is good. And he said, and should I not accept adversity? If God has a plan, I don't know what it is. I know that God is good in spite of my knowledge of what's going on here. And so he makes this statement, all this Job did not sin with his lips. He just simply served God. And I found it just amazing how Job in his pursuit of wanting to glorify the Lord just, you know, says, I'm going to accept anything that you have for me. In the middle of the book of Job, once you get to chapter 23, there's a verse in the verse 10 that Job realizes what this outcome is going to be. He doesn't realize it yet, but he believes in it. He trusts in it. He understands it. So in Job 23, verse 10, as, as he, he comes, Job makes this statement, but he, that is God, knows the way that I take. He said, he's, he has my path lined up, and he's guiding me in this path. I'm going to walk that path. He knows the way that I take. And when he, God, has tested me, 
he makes this statement, I shall come forth as gold. Understand this about trials, whether it be financial, whether it be emotional, whether it be physical, that God is allowing this to test you, to refine you, to build you up in either faith or, or, or just trusting God, realizing that he's going to mature you through these things. And I love what Job does. He says, he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. I'm going to be purified in this way. And I think it's important that as Job was going through the trials, understand this. Everyone else thought, Job, you're not good. But there wasn't a time that Job said, God, you're not good. He was like, God, just take me out if this is what you want. And my suffering. But it was always, God, I know that you're good. And I find that important to look to some of these people within the Old Testament and the New Testament to realize that when trials come, it doesn't mean that God isn't good. It just means that we don't understand the purpose. But if you are like Job to say, when I am done being tested, that you will have refined me and I will come forth as gold. I'll be more purified. I'll be, I'll be better to be used for your kingdom. Remember, there was a man in the book of Genesis, one of the sons of Jacob, who later would be, God would change his name to Israel. His name was Joseph. He was a favorite of his father, but he was not favored by his brothers. In fact, he was hated. And every time that they, Joseph would say, hey, I got another dream I want to share with you guys. And his dreams were amazing. They were the kind of dreams that all of us would want to have. He would have a dream. He said, oh, I had this amazing dream that there we were in the fields. And he says, and there was my sheaf and there was your sheaf and all of your sheaves bowed down to mine. <laughs> Joseph, isn't that a cool dream? Brother goes, no, it's not. We're not bowing down to you. That's not a good dream. And so his brothers hate him. He said, oh, I had another dream. Oh, this, you're really going to love this. There was a sun and the moon and 11 stars and, and they all bowed down to me. They hated him even more. I don't understand it. <laughs> but that was the brothers. And then eventually they said, you know, you know what we need to do? We need to kill this dreamer. We need to kill him. And, and, and as he come, he came to them as he was obeying the father. The father was trying to tell them, I need you to go and I need you to find your brother. So he went looking for his brothers. And as the brothers to the father was lost, he goes looking for them. And then they, they find him. They put him into a pit, and they're about to kill him. And then one of them has a great idea. Why do we kill him? We'd make no money. Let's sell him as a slave. we get a lot more money for him. And we can at least go and get some burgers off the kid. So let's do that. And they did. They sold him into slavery. And he went down. And while he was mistreated with his brothers, he then became a servant in this house of a man named Potiphar. And then Everything that he touched, God blessed. And then he was literally, Potiphar's wife made a move on him, and he ran out of the house. And I don't want anything to do with this, but she accused him anyways because she grabbed onto his robe. He just left the robe. I'm not going to take it with me. I'm just out of here. And she goes, this Hebrew, he tried to attack me. And uniquely, Potiphar could have put him to death, but the inference in the book is he kind of knew his wife. So to kind of appease her, he just put Joseph in a prison. 
And while he was in prison, he, there was these couple of guys from the, the Pharaoh's court, the butler and the baker, and they had dreams. He interpreted the dreams, and he said, now listen, listen, when, when you go back to the Pharaoh, remember me that I'm, I'm not wicked, and all of the stuff happened to him. Eventually, they just simply went back to their position the cupbearer did, and he forgot about Joseph for another couple of years until the Pharaoh had a dream. And eventually the dream comes, and, and he, his brothers come before him because he's elevated the second in, in all of Egypt right underneath the Pharaoh, and he basically, through his understanding of the dream, saves the world. He truly does, saves the world, saves his brothers. And his brothers now, at the end of the book of Genesis, come and say, oh my goodness, uh, we're a little bit in trouble. In Genesis chapter 50, it says in verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. They realized what we did was evil. And he said, maybe Joseph and the power that he has assume now he's going to pay for us back. And it says this in verse 20 of Genesis 50. Joseph goes in, in verse 19, he says, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God, he said, meant it for good. Blows your mind, doesn't it? The, the Joseph, all these things that happened to me were for good. It wasn't for evil. You meant it for evil. And even though you meant it for evil, God purposed it for good. Now think about that for just a second. How many times do you look at evil and because you don't understand what God is doing with it, you say this is evil, God is somehow checked out, but you don't realize that with this evil that's going on that God has purposed it, allowed it for a future good. That's the key to really understanding, is God good? And as you understand, God, you are good. And he says, listen, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good in order to bring it about this day to save many people alive. God allows tribulations. He allows situations so that what? So when the gospel is preached, they say, you know what? I want the peace that comes through Jesus Christ. I want the security that comes through Jesus Christ. I want the assurance that comes through Jesus Christ. That's what I want. And, and so often we have this tendency of looking at situations and looking at things, and we say, in my mind, I see this as evil, but I can't recognize that God is good. Because the evil is the thing that's present right now in my life, and I don't look to the future and say, God, what did you purpose it for? What do you mean it to be? Now, there's this unique portion of Scripture, two I want to look at in the Old New Testament, and this is where Paul, if you're familiar with his letter to 2 Corinthians, there's a passage in chapter 11 that blows my mind as far as some of the things that Paul went through. And after I read this passage in chapter 11, you might want to put in your Bible a note to shift back to chapter 4, because let me just share this with you. In chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, he's going to make a mention of some things. And then in chapter 4, verse 17, he's going to call it simply a light affliction. But, but look at what he calls a light affliction. 
In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. In laborers more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness, often, in hunger and thirst and fastings, often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And you thought you had a bad think about what this guy was going through robbers and perils and you know nature and people both moral evers evils and and natural you know evils all these things coming upon him and yet he says but besides that he says there's something that transcends that my deep concern for all the churches now in chapter four of second corinthians let me just share it with you. I want to just, just simply just read you this one verse because it's just so classic. In chapter 4, verse 17, Paul declares this statement, For our light affliction, which is bust, but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Do you understand that all the things that we're going through, he was going through, was declaring one thing. This is a light affliction. It's only but a moment. Now think about that. And you may say, Paul, you know, I don't know how long you've been going through your affliction, but I've been going through my affliction for over 20 years. And some will say, oh, Lola, that's nothing. I've been going through my affliction for over 50 years. And some will say, oh, you have nothing on me. I've been going through my affliction for 80 years. And think about that. If you're going through an affliction, one affliction, multiple afflictions for 80 years, God says this about our life. It's a vapor. Here and gone. It's that quick. And I find it unique that he says, my light affliction, what I'm going through physically, is but for a moment. But it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There's a purpose that God has purposed it for, for good. I, I don't know what it is yet, but I do believe that it's true. Why? Because I know God is good. I stand on the fact that he's good. I'm not going to move away from that fact that he's good. Now, the author of Hebrews will go to chapter 11 and start talking about, through this chapter, they call the Great Hall of Faith. And in this Hall of Faith, he talks about amazing acts of faith, amazing things of people, you know, just, just overcoming all kinds of trials, overcoming all kinds of, of pain and distress. He talks about in verse 20, 33 of, of Hebrews 11, verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weaknesses were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of the aliens and women received their dead, raised to life. And you go, yes, God is good. Now, isn't that good? 
When you think about quenching the violence of fire, overcoming mouths of lions and, and those that are wicked, becoming valiant in battle, winning, 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 winning. You just get tired of winning. You're winning so much until you look to this and you think, oh my goodness, that is faith. God is good. But then the author of Hebrews in the middle of verse 35 said this, others were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they were made to obtain a better res resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings. Yes, of chains of imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Is God good? To whom was he good? Do you understand that there, there's a future that he had for all those who suffered? And this, remember Psalm 73? Until I go into the sanctuary of God, and then I remember, oh, this isn't the end. See, their suffering and their death wasn't the end because what? They're with God in heaven. It's amazing that you may be suffering here, but when you're with God, you're no longer suffering. If you remember that situation that Jesus spoke of in the Gospel of Luke about a rich man and a man by the name of Lazarus, they both died. The rich man went to a place of torment. Lazarus happened to be found in the bosom of Abraham. Abraham was like, come on, Lazarus, let me just hug you. Let me just hug you, man. Just bring you right here next to my heart, hold on to you and say, it's, everything's going to be okay. Lazarus was comforted. Now, now, I'll tell you what, as amazing as being in the arms of, of Abraham, oh, I can't wait to be in the arms of God. To have him come and say, come on, son, wham, you know, just, just holding on. My youngest grandson, little Lowell, he's just an amazing little guy. He's just over a year, just over a year. And, and he was there in the arms of his mother, and we hadn't seen him for a couple of weeks. We were busy and hadn't gone in there. And, and I walked into the house, and he's there in his mother's arms. And at about a year, you know, his, his mama's loves mama, loves mama, loves mama. He saw me, and he did this, almost leapt out of his mother's arms to come into mine. And, and, and he... Literally, he's just, he wrapped his hands around my neck and my head and just put his head down on my shoulder, and he stayed there. Didn't move. I'm, minutes are going by, and I'm just in love. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my goodness. This is amazing. And he's, he's just over one, and he just has this love. And I held him. I, you don't have to get up. You don't have to do anything. Just, just stay right there. And, and uh, then he didn't even want to go back to mama. Like, I just want to stay with you, Poppy. I'm just going to hang out right here. That's what God's going to do. We're, we're going to wind up in heaven after, after whatever brief affliction we go through here. Brief. It's a vapor, this life. It's a vapor. And then we have eternity with God in heaven. He's good. I just I want to tell you that he's good. And, and so just think about this as, as God is, is trying to talk to the nation of Israel. He's good, he's good, he's good. But so often in our mind, we look to circumstances, situations, say, I don't know. I don't know if you're good. I know you're good here, but I, I doubt if you're good here. You remember the children of, of Israel when they were in Egypt? When they were afflicted, was God good? 
As he was afflicting them, was God good? When, when the plagues came upon Egypt, was God good? Now, now they were spared the plagues. Egypt had the plague. Was God good? When the children were freed, when Egypt said, oh, just get out of here and here, have some gold and silver while you're at it, was God good? But then when they were going in the wilderness and all of a sudden the Egypt pursues them and they're caught between the Red Sea and, e and Egypt, is God good? Now, all of a sudden, like, wait, I know he's good here. I don't know if he's good there. What about this? When the children of Israel, after God delivered them from the Egyptian army, was he good when he drowned the Egyptian army? When they complained that they had no food and no water, was God good? When he brought them to the promised land, and he says, come on, enter in. This is all yours. Is God good? Now, when they didn't believe him, and God said, okay, those of you that did not believe are going to wander the wilderness for 40 years, and you're all going to die. Is God good? See, isn't it amazing how we're, we're talking about the same God bringing the children of Israel through the same thing? The outcome was this. You're going to receive the fullness of my promise if you want it. If you trust in me and you want it, you're going to receive the fullness of the promise. And all the situations, see, if you look at situations, you're good here, you're not good here. You're paying attention here, you're not paying attention. He was there the whole time in the wilderness. He was there guiding them with the pillar of, of smoke and fire by night. He was there the whole time. Did he change from saying, I'm good today, I'm not good tomorrow? No, he's still good. Because they didn't understand the whole situation. They're looking at an instance. You and I are looking at an instance of situation, but we're not looking at what? The bigger picture. See, God was going to bring Israel into the promised land. He was going to raise up a king, David. And through his blood, through his lineage, he was going to raise up another king, Jesus. This kinsman redeemer would go to the cross, pay for our sins, so that we as sinners could be forgiven and have eternity with God. Is he good? Of course he is. And we realize that all the things he was doing was just fulfilling a promise, fulfilling a promise, fulfilling a promise. So the big question that sometimes comes into our mind or what people from the world ask us is this. Can a God who is good, can he allow evil? That's a great question. Can a God who's good, who's the author of good, can he allow evil? And is this God the author of evil? Is he making both good and bad? Is he, is he in control? Well, there's a term in Christianity called theodicy. Um, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, theodicy. Some people say it's theodicy, but it's not as theodicy is how it's pronounced. And what theodicy is this, it's the vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. That's all theodicy means. Is God good when there's evil? If there's if evil is going around. Now, there, there, it branches off in all kinds of things. There's classical theodicy. There's, there's practical theodicy. There's anti-theodicy. There's the engagement theodicy. So it branches everywhere. But theodicy is basically, in its nutshell, is this. The vindication that God is good in view of the existence of evil. That God is good and he, he has a, a will and a purpose. So keep in mind that evil itself, as far as we understand it, doesn't only branch out to the suffering of men. 
Now, now, now keep in mind that there are two types of evils that we usually picture or the world pictures. There's the moral evil, which is wrongs that are put upon us by men and the choices men make. Those moral evils. Now, sometimes that can result in physical suffering. Sometimes it can result in emotional suffering. Evil men with wrong morals tearing us down, ripping us apart, both physically and emotionally. That, that, that's a moral evil, a moral wrong. And then there's these natural evils. We call them natural disasters. Insurance companies call them acts of God. Wow. Where is their theology? Apparently, they haven't understood theodicy yet. So when, when they call about an act of God, just put on the slip, theodicy, send it back to them, let them study. Because you'll already have the answer. So what happens is these acts of God that the insurance company says or natural situations. In other words, like floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, that kind of thing. Something that causes death, something that causes, um, you know, suffering. Now, we know that God is the author of good. That Job declares it for us. God, you're just good. You, you, you work all things for good. We, we understand how Romans 8, 23, that, that all things work together for the good. God, God has a plan. He's the author of good. But, but the, the question then comes is, if he's the author of good, is he also the author of evil? It's an interesting that when you look at the early church fathers and how they, they looked at evil, that many of them didn't actually look at evil as a thing. Understand that we look at good as a, a thing, a situation. This is something that I can tangibly say this is good. And the world looks at evil, say so I can tangibly say that this is evil. But the early church fathers didn't look at it in that way. The early church fathers look at it like this. You have a jacket, you have a shirt, you have a pair of pants. And they're whole and they're right and they're good and they're new. And then you get a hole in it. Is that hole a thing? No, the hole isn't a thing. The hole is an absence of a thing. The whole is, is not an actual thing itself. It's an absence of the good. And that's what they looked as evil as, that God has a, a character, a will, a plan. And when people move from that will, they move from his plan, they move from what God desires, that now is evil. So God isn't the author of evil. When they say, how could a good God allow evil? It's like, no, you understand. God is a God who's merciful, long-suffering. He, he's, he's gracious, and he allows people to remove his goodness. That becomes evil. And the same way with the enemy, that, that God has a, a plan for nature, but then when sin came, the world was cursed. Evil happens. It's, it's the absence of what God would desire. And so keep in mind that what evil really becomes is this absence of a divine will. It's the absence of the very purpose of God. And so if you think about evil in that way, it might help you understand a little bit what evil is. Evil isn't a thing. Like goodness, God is good. He's a thing. It's a purpose. Evil is an absence to that. So when people say, well, could a good God allow evil? Is he the author of evil? You can say, no, he's not. He's the author of good. Evil is the absence of what he's willing, what he's purposing. Kind of helps out with some things. And so as we're looking to this whole area, is God good? I love what, what Nahum says in our chapter 1 verse 7. He says, yes, the Lord is good. End of statement. 
Just that's it. The Lord is good. And not only does he say that the Lord is good, but he comes and he says, the Lord is good. And then he says this in verse 7, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Not only is he good, but he's also a stronghold. In other words, where do you run to when trouble does come? When, 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 when you no longer are experiencing the, the fullness of what God declares is good and you're not understanding that it's good, where do you go from there? Do, do you abandon what God is doing and you abandon God and say he's not good, he's not in charge? What do you do? Where do you go? Well, Nahum says this, not only is the Lord good, but he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. That when you doubt this, you come to the Lord. Remember when we read there that Psalm of Asaph in Psalm 73, truly the Lord is good. And then he says, my feet almost stumbled. But then he said this, until I went into the sanctuary. Until I went into, let's put it this way, the stronghold. Until I went into the place of, of confidence and assurance. This is when I really understood what was going on. I run to God because when I run to God, this is where the security comes. This is where that safety comes. A couple of verses I just want to share with you. Jot it down if you're a note taker. If not, just simply memorize it. Then it'll help you out. But in Psalm 31, verse 19 and 20, let me just read it to you. It says this. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in a secret place, in the secret place of your presence from the plots of men and shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. I love this. He says, oh, great is your goodness. And when trouble comes, I can hide in you. I can, I can put myself in your place. I can put myself in your heart, and I'm safe there. In Psalm 34, verse 7 and 8, let me read that to you. He said, the angel of the Lord encamps out of all, wait, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fears him and delivers him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. He said, you're going to see that God is good. The angel is going to come and strengthen you. We, we realize all this, Lord, that you are truly, truly good. And I don't have to question that. You know, where we read in, in, on, on Wednesday, we quoted in Psalm um, 61, verse 3, where it says, you've been a shelter for me. In Proverbs 18, 10, where he says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. Um, other translations say, and they are saved. And so I think it's important to realize that, that, yeah, God is a place of security. God is a place of safety. There's two passages that are parallel, and you should be aware that they're parallel, and you should always try to tie them together. The first passage is found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. The second one is Luke eleven thirteen. So Matthew 7, 11, Luke 11, verse 13. Matthew 7, 11, as Jesus is talking, he's sharing, and he, you know, where he's saying, you know, what man among you, if his son asks for bread, is going to give him a stone? So he's, you know, talking about, you know, how God is good and about asking God is going to provide. And he says this in verse 11, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven um, give good things to those who ask him? He says, your God, God is good. If you being semi-good, you know, know not to do evil things to your children, how much more will God, 
God who is good, give, give good to those who ask him. Jesus will define that a little bit further. And, and I find this just so beautiful in Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Same passage is going on, and Jesus changes the words a little bit this time when he says it. In verse 13, he says, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You understand? There's a shelter. There's a security. That when you ask him, that he actually gives us the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you, where do you run? Where do you go in times of trial? Where, where do you go in, in, in times where, where this is a problem? Uh, the, the problem is, is this. A lot of us, we go into our own mind. We go to our neighbors. We go to our friends. How do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? What can I do? Rather than just saying, I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna come close to you in prayer and I'm gonna wait on you. I'm gonna wait on you. You're gonna find that this strong tower that God is when you come closer and you just wait on the spirit, you're going to realize, Jesus, you are my comfort in sorrow. Do you ever notice that when, when you wait on the Lord and the Holy Spirit comes and he says, Jesus is going to be your comfort in this time of sorrow. Jesus is going to be the strength in the time of your weakness. And you always see the heart of it. Jesus is going to be your hope in this time of despair. So as we look to these things, you know, it's like, yeah, I got it, Lord. You are the light in the darkness. That's who you are, Jesus. You're, you're everything that I need. When we determine, when we come to that truth that it's in you and only in you, then what comes of, of Nahum in this passage in chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And then it says this, he knows those who trust in him. This is the rub. I'll be honest with you, this is the rub. Because what happens is this. We sometimes think, okay, I'm trusting in God, but then we disagree with how he's doing something. Like, I, I trust you, Lord. I, I Simply, I trust in you, but the way this situation is working out, you need to fix something. Does that mean that you're trusting in him? See, it means I say I trust, but when the situation comes and nuts and bolts is, like Asaph, my feet almost slipped. I almost stumbled. I was envious. I'm, I'm not trusting. I want to trust, but I don't trust in certain situations. And I think it's important to realize this just to what degree that we actually trust let me share with you a definition that the trust is moving into the conviction that whatever God has willed and is doing is right. Can you say that? No matter what the circumstances look like present, whatever you've willed, whatever you, your, your future holds, what you're doing in me right now is right. What you're allowing in this city is right. What you're allowing in my place of work is right. What you're allowing in this nation is right. What you're allowing in the world is right. You are in control. I'm, I'm convicted, Lord. I'm convinced that, that what you are willed, what you have willed, and what you are doing is going to work out perfectly. And just being at peace with his will. I, I, regardless of what's going on, and I may be, be struggling, when I lean to your will, I'm accepting your will. I'm accepting that you may move in a way that's different from the way that I think you should move. 
I'm accepting that, that you, what you're doing may be contrary to what I may believe is the best way to do it. Now, how many times do we in our finite mind think this is how it should be done? And God in his infinite wisdom says, boy, if you knew the end from the beginning, you would realize how silly your plan is. You realize how little you know. That when he's tested us, he wants us to come forth as gold. Do you really want to come forth and, and be tin? To, to, to be a metal that isn't precious? And, and I, I find that I, I love this passage because so much of what God desires to do is to bring us to trust. Remember Jesus when he was there on the Mount of Olives? And, and in, in the, the time of the highest despair in which he was in, he, he sweat as it were great drops of blood. But I want to share with you a passage in Mark chapter 14. I want to start reading in verse 33. And I'm going to read through verse 36 just so you can kind of grasp what's going on. But it said this, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him a little further. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. Stay here with me. Watch with me. Be alert with me. And what do they do? <laughs> they go to sleep. He wakes them up. And then what do they do? They go back to sleep. But notice what he says when he says, oh, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. And then he goes a little further, verse 35, and he fell on the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible from you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but as you will. Yeah. Do you understand how he's, he's comes to this point of absolutely saying, God, I know that your purpose is for a future good. And what was that purpose? The salvation of the world, the redemption of the world. And so he, he wants to do that. And so keep in mind that when we say, God, I'm trusting in you, I'm trusting. Are you really trusting in God? Because remember when Proverbs chapter 3 says, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Don't deal with your own understanding or the understanding of those of you think, how do I get through this? What do I do? <laughs> Just lean on God, trust in the spirit, know that what he's working out is good. And I think it's so important that, you know, when we say I trust God, so often we're not trusting in the God of the Bible, but in the God of our own making, because the God of my making wouldn't do this. The God of my making wouldn't allow this. So when I'm really saying I'm trusting in God, what I'm saying is, God, you should change this to what I know is going to work out well. But that's not trusting in the God of the Bible. Trusting God of the Bible says, Lord, you know the end from the beginning. And I know that whatever people may deem is evil and people may mean it for evil, you're purposing this in my life and the life of the church and the life of the city, the life of the nation, the life of the world. You're purposing it for good because you're in control of every situation. And I know that. So I don't want my feet to stumble. I don't want to slip. I'm going to come into the sanctuary where I know that you're good. I'm going to come in. I'm going to allow the spirit to encompass me and fill me because I know that you're good and you're going to give me the spirit. And in you, the spirit is this place of safety and security. You're going to lead me to, to the Lord. And I realize, Jesus, you're going to be my comfort in this time of sorrow. You're going to bring this peace and the strength and this hope and this light in all of these situations. 
But I think it's just so often that we look to the, the scriptures and how often do we look to the scripture and we say, I don't like this. Now, they're not here, but there may be some listening, you know, out there on, on YouTube or, or on Facebook live to say, I don't like this. Now, it wouldn't be any of you guys ever, but, you know, sometimes out there they, they, they listen. And they say, I don't like what Lola's saying. I just don't like it. Well, understand, I, I'm simply reading it. I'm, I'm reading what, what the Spirit of God has, has, has breathed. And, and they say, I don't, I don't like it. Now, some will say, I don't understand it. And, and it's okay, we don't understand it. And, and some say, well, you know, I've actually, maybe you've heard this too, where people say, I don't like the fact that God punishes sin. If he's a loving God, why would he punish sin? Well, because he's not just a loving God. He's a righteous God. He's a holy God. And that's another rub. People, I don't like the fact that God says, be holy as he's holy. I don't like the fact that, 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 that God demands and wants holiness from us. Can't he just live with us? Doesn't he just wink at sin like we wink at sin? No. But they don't like the God of the Bible. They don't like what God declares. And yet when we trust in him, when we trust in him, there's an old hymn, and there's a stanza within that hymn that says, when peace like a river, <laughs> I love this, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, he makes this statement, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. And, and when we come to those areas, we, we realize, you know, your peace is, is always here, no matter what the circumstances may be out there. He gives us a peace, the scripture says, that surpasses understanding. I don't know why I have peace, but I have peace. And so when you trust in this, and when you realize God is good, and you realize, God, you have a way, and then you say, okay, Lord, I get it. I get it. You are good. And then we, like the psalmist in Psalm 107, verse 1, and we can say, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endureth forever. We, we claim over and over, God, you're good. God, you're good. In Psalm 135, verse 3, praise the Lord, for he is good. Sing praises to his name, his character, for it is pleasant. No matter if I'm going through a trial, no matter what I'm going through, I realize, God, that you're good. And, and when we come to this area and we say, God, I, I know, I know that you're good. I, I know that you are this, this stronghold, and I, I want to trust in you according to what your word defines as trust, not what my brain wants to be as trust, not what my heart wants to feel as trust. So we come to this area and we say, okay, God, if you're good and evil's here, what's the situation? Remember now, before the, Nahum writes verse 7, he writes verse 3. Look at a moment here in, in Nahum 1 verse 3. He says this, the Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. If you can say, how do I understand verse 7? It's like, read and believe verse 3. If you believe it, you're going to realize, God, you, you are long-suffering. You, you are truly, truly long-suffering when it comes to wicked. 
and it comes to evil, and it comes to, to the, the reality of sin in this world and in my life. You are long-suffering. You are slow to anger. And so when you realize, God, why aren't you judging this right now? Because he's slow to anger. Just believe what God says about himself. And then realize that when you say, okay, oh, you, you're, you're patient, but can't you do it? Can't you fix it? He says, yeah, look at He's great in power. He can fix it. And he will fix it when it's time, but now is not the time. And then he says this, and he will not at all acquit the wicked. Stand on that. Don't, don't demand that he acquit the wicked right now because there's still people that I'm praying for that I want saved. So, so don't say, judge the wicked right now. And just, just okay, be long-suffering. There's still people I'm praying for that I want to come to know the Lord. And I want them to experience his mercy and his grace like I have. Realize when the time comes, he's not going to quit. He's not going to simply wink, wink at sin. In fact, he didn't wink at my sin. He didn't wink at your sin. He literally allowed our sin to be placed upon his son there on the cross, and he bore it. He bore the, the full wrath of God while he was there. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God separated the Trinity that was together for eternity, was ripped apart for three hours. And Jesus, my God, my God, why have you left me? Why can't I experience your presence? You understand? He's grieving this. I don't know when, when, how often God has to be outside your mind and outside your heart where you begin to panic and say, oh my goodness, Lord, I've missed you. It's been an hour. It's been three hours. It's, you know, I, I need you close. Oh, there you are. Thank you. Some of us can go days, weeks, months. Oh, 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 there, oh okay, God, by the way, hi. <laughs> Haven't missed you, but hi. I want to just stop in and say hi. I think it's incredible what God declares about himself. And we realize that God is slow in anger. He is great in power, but he will not acquit. Come back to verse 7 where you say, God, you're good. You're going to deal with sin in your way, in your time, but through long suffering, but eventually you will deal with it. But, but I, I, it's my prayer is that those who are in sin will come to an end of their own and receive the gift of God. And this is where our heart is. And so when, when we look, is God good? Whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, I'm here to tell you that he is. And, and when you do find yourself in, in a place of trouble or distress, whether it's physically, emotionally, um, you know, financially, however you do, run to God and to realize that in, in you is my security, in you is my safety, and then say, I'm going to trust in you, not, not in the way the, the world would trust, in the way that I think I should trust, but in the way that your scriptures say I should trust, that even though I don't in my mind see what you're doing or in my heart agree that this is the best way, I know that you're sovereign. I know you know the end from the beginning, and I know that when I'm done being tested, when this little season this light affliction is past that we like job are going to come forth refined like gold may this be our heart as we come especially in this season trusting in the lord and declaring worshiping oh give thanks to the lord for he is good praise the lord for he is good let us praise like the psalmist amen 
Well, Father, we do come and, Lord, even still, some are going to walk out of here today. Not, not, you know, some will listen to the message online today and, and really say, I, I disagree. I don't understand. Father, we here in this place, we know that you are good. We've experienced, we've worshipped, we've seen, we've tasted and know that you are good. And so again, continue to draw us to that understanding today. Knit us to your heart. And so, Father, as we, we close in worship, we do ask that you would impress upon us this truth that we would walk out of here saying, the Lord is good, period. In times of distress, we come to you and we find safety and security because we're, we're trusting the way that you, through your word, declared that we can trust in you in spite of what we know, in spite of what we can experience. We come into your sanctuary, we see the end. The end is the salvation that you provided through your son. Of course you love us. Of course you're good. You would have never sent your son if you weren't loving, if you weren't good. And so help us to proclaim these truths, Lord, to those who do not know, who are struggling with the fact that, that you could be good in this, in, when evil is here. Knit us, Lord, knit us to your heart, we ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said...